Hey, welcome to The Scrum, WGBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley with Peter Kadzis. Peter, hello. Greetings. And also Boston City Councilor Michelle Wu, who has been all over the news in the past few months, pushing back at fare hikes on the T, calling out the Boston Herald for a cover that was widely deemed offensive to Chinese Americans, and now calling and campaigning for the abolition of the powerful and very entrenched Boston Planning and Development Agency. Michelle Wu, thanks for being here. Great to be here. By the way, I should say that that's not the only set of things that you were up to over the past few months, but those are just some highlights that jumped out at me. Is there anything huge that I'm omitting? Uh, we've been pushing for vocational education and spending a lot of time at Madison Park and across the state thinking about that, um, thinking about early education and child care, visiting almost every Boston Public High School, uh, the ones that I could get to, and yeah, a lot on transportation planning and development. Okay. Before we get talking about your BPDA plan, you have been in office for, I think, coming up on six years right. now, right? How has your conception of the role of an at-large Boston City Councilor changed from the time you took office until right now? I talk about this a lot, actually, on the campaign trail in that the last six years have, has been a relatively short period of time to be in politics, but the swing in terms of not just what it's like doing the job and the um, the level of need in the community and the near crisis state of so many of the issues that we're talking about at the city level, transportation, housing prices, climate, inequality. But it's also that I think the general public and the community sees their city council and city councilors differently. That when I first ran for office, there was kind of a little, why in the world would you want to do that? Why would you want to go be part of this, this system where you might not be able to accomplish much? And now the level of interest and, and eagerness of community members to partner because the city council is really seen as a place to make change is has been amazing. So have you change the way you execute the job. And I'm thinking the, the thing that got me wanting to get you talking about this was all the photos that you took as you were going around the city, uh, sizing up the condition of the tea featuring, was it one or both of your kids who, who were featured in the pictures? Like, was it both of them? <laughs> At that point, I was commuting into City Hall with both of them, which is a lot. So uh, to go around documenting areas where the tea, which obviously is not a city agency, but a statewide agency, where the tea was falling short, to feature your kids, which I know you ended up going back and forth with people on social media about. Um, am I right that that's not something you would have even imagined doing one year or two years into your term or into your tenure? I'm not sure. I mean, I I was elected with no kids. I mean, I was raising my sister, but didn't have children at the, of my own at that point. I think the nature of the job and the the urgency with which we need to be addressing issues has just grown so much that it's also important to build the trust with community members that you're living real life too. And that as much as government and policymakers can try to come in and pass a law or, or this or that, that it really matters whose experiences you're lifting up and the types of stories that you are shining a light on. And so I actually, I think on that front, it's not that different. You know, one of the first things I did on the council was to um, work on my, one of my first two pieces of legislation included paid parental leave legislation for the city. And that came about because I was pregnant. I learned I was the first sitting counselor to have a baby while in office. 
and it wasn't so much my own experience, but me visibly being pregnant out at community meetings meant that so many residents were coming to me telling stories of what it was like and how hard it was to go back to work once the baby came, that that became a real priority and, and urgent issue for me. And in a similar way, you know, I started on the council living in the South End and um, have since moved to Roslindale and live in a two-family home there. And the transportation experience is completely different and has gotten worse over the last uh, few years with the MBTA. And so it's important to, to lift that up and, and acknowledge how many people are depending on that. Let's turn our attention to your plan for the BPDA. Um, you know, listen, getting rid of the Boston plan, what is it, Boston Planning Development Authority. Agency. Agency. Is that right? Yeah. Let me do that again. Getting rid of the Boston Planning Development Agency is a really pretty big lift. Um, given how complicated the issue is, and by that I mean um, you have to go to the state house, have major legislation to restructure things, isn't Lydia Edwards' more limited proposal focused at the ZBA, the Zoning Board of Appeals, um, perhaps an easier step in the right direction than your more sweeping plan? Now, I'm not dissing your plan. I'm just talking about, um, you know, political convenience, the path of least resistance, if you will. I certainly think that there is a set of immediate issues, particularly around restoring public confidence and trust in the Zoning Board of Appeals, given recent news and given the um, guilty plea around bribe being taken to influence the board, that there is a set of reforms that is needed now and in the near future. I also think that as much as we could spend time trying to improve transparency and ethics at this ZBA level, as long as the underlying system is still driving more than half of development projects through a special appeals process based on exceptions, that we will always have this underlying issue of relationships and influence driving approvals. And that leads to unpredictability, which is bad for everyone, not just developers, but especially residents. And it also leads to speculation because there's no good information on what a parcel could be, uh, what height a parcel could be built up to. And, and it is dependent on how well that particular developer knows the system to be able to, to propose something high and potentially win it. And that just affects the entire neighborhood and city. So in name, the report is about abolishing the BPDA, but really it is about whether we as a city are ready to let go of a system that is built on special approvals and driven by influence. Now, when you leave here, you're going to East Boston to a community meeting, and you're going to be with Councillor Edwards. Yes. Um, I know the meeting has to take its own form, and it'll be its own rhythm, but um, I find it hard to imagine that your proposal and Councillor Edwards' proposal won't be discussed. Uh, how might such a discussion go? So this will be the second of the listening sessions that I'm participating in and, and convening around this conversation that the entire city needs to have together on planning, development and zoning. 
in particular in East Boston, um, Councilor Edwards has released a report on fair housing and zoning, as well as her proposals to change the makeup of how um, seats are designated on the ZBA. And so we will each give a presentation about our specific proposals and ideas, but mostly it's about listening to residents and what their experiences have been in terms of development in the neighborhood and what they would like to see instead and in, in how we should shape a city with citizens and residents' involvement. Uh, just one more question, and I'll let Adam get the word in edgewise. You had your first listening session in the South End, and people from other neighborhoods came, which doesn't surprise me, a lot of interest around this issue. South End is centrally located. But um, could you characterize that meeting? Or what, what, what were the two or three most interesting things you walked away with? from that first listening session. Yeah, our first session was the day that the report came out and with less than 24 hours notice, we had over 100 people from all different, you know, East Boston, Charlestown, all the way down to Hyde Park and everywhere in between. And everyone had some experience about being frustrated with either the BRA and its former name or the BPDA. And yet the consistency of what people wanted was remarkable, that there was a recognition of how the city is changing and how neighborhoods are going through similar stresses of people not being able to afford where to live, where not being able to afford their own neighborhoods, of people being afraid about climate change and what that means as, as our weather patterns change and the flooding continues and, and the heat um, intensifies and about how we build a city where everyone can truly be welcome and, and have a place here. So I think there was consensus that the current system isn't working, that with such a complicated system, residents are exhausted and meeting out was the term that, that several attendees used, and that a better system would in fact benefit not just people in the community, but everyone with more predictability, with clear rules that match community needs, we could have a system that brings Boston the resources to reach our highest potential. And we have all the pieces, but we're just not planning right now. We're not planning in a way that gives context to every decision in, in terms of the city. Does that answer your question, Peter? Yes. Okay. Uh, I want to ask you about what Mayor Walsh had to say about your proposal. But before I do that, Peter talked about what a heavy lift it would be to, to get rid of the BPD and create a new system. Um, but can we just, for listeners who might not know the minutiae, or say participants in this conversation who might not know the minutiae, can we just talk through what exactly would need to happen for your plan to become a reality? Oh, good point. Yeah. Um, and, and really, the, the report is meant to not just explain the history and legacy of our development process, but the exact steps that the city would need to take to unwind that. So we have an agency that was created in 1957 at the height of urban renewal specifically to carry out demolition of neighborhoods, um, preference and tax breaks for corporations to facilitate development at a time when it was believed that cities could only be saved by massive, quick 
development, redevelopment at all costs. And that system is still, the agency structure is still the same. The The name has changed and there's been some um, additional transparency around documents posted and and ways that people can uh, follow the process along a little, a little better. But ultimately, we are still operating approval by approval, parcel by parcel, rather than updating the zoning. So the biggest change is that our current zoning, which is essentially obsolete, right? The, the underlying zoning code, the base zoning code dates back to 1964, and we have not had a citywide overhaul of zoning since then. There has not been a citywide master plan that has fed into zoning. So most of the rules are very out of date. Every new project that's proposed needs some exception to those outdated rules. So what we need to do is transfer the assets and the property that the BPDA is holding in place of the city onto the city books so that there would be actual oversight and provide the revenue streams to fund a city planning department that would carry out citywide master planning, update the zoning, and I believe we would also need to streamline the rest of it then. Once the rules are clear, rules that match community needs because the public has had input in, in defining those rules, then developers build to those rules and there's no exception by exception after that. So to, to create that transfer, say, that, that huge step of transferring the BPDA's assets to the city, is that something that the city council could do itself uh, with the mayor's sign-off? Is it something that would take legislative approval to make that happen? How would that work? Yeah, that's a great question. So, in fact, 80, 75 80% of the reforms or steps needed to unwind the BPDA could happen without state approval, that the administration, through a combination of actions that the BPDA board would be directed to take and the administration itself, sometimes with city council approval, sometimes without you know, not needing that, could happen. So the BPDA could itself transfer the property over to the city without any need for a home rule petition or state legislative action. Could, could I ask you just to repeat that equation? It's what percent could be done without state without the legislature's approval? So this is, this is I didn't calculate the exact you know, well, length or this speaking. and that, but we could essentially, the city of Boston could functionally dismantle the BPDA without state approval, without the need for state legislation. We would need state legislation to formalize it, to actually undo the, the name and the agency which was created through state legislation to begin with. Uh, we would need state legislation to um, create an independent planning board, uh, but everything up until then the transfer of assets, the creation of a city planning department, the um, oversight over citywide master plan process and the steps to, to that would follow from that could all happen without the state. I think you had a chance to listen to at least a little bit of our conversation with Mayor Walsh. We talked to him about a week ago. And when we asked him about your BPDA report, he said, it, you know, in his uh, file of things he's going to read, that he's going to check it out. I don't know if he has uh, by the time we're taping now. But he went on to say, and I'm paraphrasing here, but the gist seemed to be, I have done a whole lot since becoming mayor to change the way what used to be the BRA operates and that these changes go far beyond just renaming it the BPDA. The system isn't perfect now, but it works a lot better than it used to. I think that's a fair yeah, broad brush characterization that, that's of what the mayor said. Pretty much said. what he said. Uh, do you buy that? So I've heard this from a number of different places as well, that the BPDA is not 
the BRA of the 1950s and 60s. We're not demolishing neighborhoods anymore. We're, um, we're trying to do better. And I will give credit where it's due. There, there have been steps to improve transparency. There have been steps to start to undertake more uh, planning initiatives that are still focused on either corridors or sections of a neighborhood. But I don't buy the argument that just because we're doing better than the worst of the abuses under the system, that it's the best system that we could have or that it's even acceptable. There are such tremendous challenges facing Boston right now, such urgency around climate and our housing crisis and our traffic and transportation system that we need to be thinking about the deep structural reforms that will empower the city, but really empower residents to be part of bringing about the system that we actually want and deserve. I'm sitting here listening to everything you're saying, and I'm having one of my periodic flashbacks. Um, Adam might suspect what's coming. And it's not that I disagree with anything you're saying. It's just that I, I think public officials, for a, a whole variety of reasons, overestimate the city's ability to control the market uh, absent large amounts of federal money. Um, now, by the way, what I just said is not an argument that you know, the, the, the market is efficient and the market should rule. Just the opposite. It's just that I, I think that elected officials don't have as much leverage, no matter what, whatever the system is, absent large amounts of federal money that provide muscle that's there. And unfortunately, ever since the Ronald Reagan was president, that money has dwindled. Um, any reaction to my hunch? I agree with you that the federal environment and particularly the, the funding availability really affects municipalities' ability to think about resources that, that could be used to implement programs. But we are in one of the largest booms in the city of Boston's history Thousands, tens of thousands of new units of housing being constructed, and yet there's not enough housing available that people can actually afford. It has absent government action to make sure that the market is acting within the right parameters. We were letting these resources essentially evaporate into speculation and housing units that are luxury units with no one living in them. And we know, you know, the facts are clear that there's been tr a tremendous infusion of wealth and capital into Boston in the last decade, and especially in the last five, six, seven years. And yet housing prices have become more unaffordable for people. We know that the rent that renters in Boston, over half of renters in Boston are rent burdened, that um, over half of um, extremely low income families in Boston are paying more than half of their income 
to rent. And that is just a situation that is unsustainable. And, and that's just housing. I mean, if you think about, let's just dip for a tiny bit of time into transportation and the challenges that we've seen with a, a crumbling public transportation system literally falling off the tracks and catching on fire. It has meant that we're when we're pursuing new companies and big businesses coming to Boston and bringing all of these jobs without planning for the need to invest in infrastructure to accommodate that from the housing supply and, and where that matches from the transportation um, infrastructure angle. This was, you know, th this was bound to happen. And it is it is that lack of planning, the lack of looking at the big picture and the context of all of the neighborhoods put together and all of the developments added on top of each other and all of the issues that we are facing that are very interconnected, we're not addressing this from a big picture, long-term view right now. It is about keeping the development boom going, mostly feeding the luxury housing boom in a way that hasn't trickled down. It just, it simply has no, no, not happened. And I'm not going to argue with that. And I think... Uh, a strong, I think there, there there is a strong case for having better planning so we know where we're going. But I don't see how City Hall, even with better planning and even playing along the margins to increase the amount of affordable or market rate housing that's built, I don't see a future in the next 10 years of how my three 20-year-old boys can afford to live in Boston. So believe me, I'm spiritually where you are, but even making these structural changes, um, absent federal money to build affordable housing or to subsidize it, I don't see how the, the changing of the planning structure, which by the way, I think should be done, is going to result in a solution to the problems you're highlighting. So I, I agree. We certainly need a changeover in 2020. And I think any one of the uh, the candidates, but particularly, you know, I'm all for Elizabeth Warren and I, I'm just waiting until uh, we're in a different federal environment. But at the same time, we can't, we don't have the luxury of being patient anymore. We just don't have the luxury to put consensus and and um, and patience and and trying not to upset people before progress with the urgency of the issues. And it's one thing to say Boston needs to meet demand and, and we're estimating that it will take 53,000 units or now over 65,000 units of new housing to do so by the year 2030. And it's another thing to say, and this is where these units should go in a way that is sustainable for the city's mobility and, um, and, and infrastructure. Because when there is no planning and it's just that number, what's happening is that developers are going where it's cheapest and going where the neighborhoods are least able to push back. And by cheapest, I mean they're picking places that are not zoned for height, but again, based on the political environment or the part of the election cycle that we're in or uh, their ability, their belief that their relationships can get them a huge variance to get a lot of height. That's how the development is happening. And it has 
the ripple effects when it comes to transportation. I mean, we've seen car ownership now through the roof because we haven't been planning near and, and integrated with transportation. This will only become more unbearable. I'll say something I rarely say on this podcast. That answers my question. Um, listen, let me staying broadly on the subject, but you raise in your report the very important point slash issue that Boston is overly reliant on property taxes. And by the way, that's something that will meet with universal approval. Um, but you don't really come to grips with how we get out of that reliance. And by the way, that is beyond the remit of what you were, what you set out to do. But um, it it's too important an issue not to at least speculate about. I mean, my God, as someone who's a, 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 a resident and taxpayer in Boston, I from time to time think about it and I don't have a clue. But do you have any broad general thoughts about how Boston might shed this over-reliance, and maybe you could sprinkle it with an example or two. I just want to take an example. I haven't said this in the podcast. To me, one of the most interesting parts of uh, Councilor Wu's report are what I would call best practices. The whole report is punctuated with examples of Seattle does this or Dallas does that. I'm not sure if Dallas did, but anyway, with cities around the country that may do a particular thing really well. And um, I, I would say anyone interested in Boston, it's worth reading the report just for that catalog of examples. But anyway, back back to my point with how can Boston... Um, uh, move away from being a prisoner of um, property taxes. And uh, there are other cities that have done it. So um, to connect both of the points that you made, one of my favorite examples in the report was from Indianapolis, which you know might be surprising. What, what can we learn from, from Indianapolis? Um, Boston's, imagine Boston 2030, uh, project, the the initiative, which was a, a broad visioning and is touted as having engaged 15,000 residents in giving feedback about what they wanted the shape of their neighborhoods and communities to look like. Indianapolis, which is a slightly larger city than us. I was going to say, that's a point worth highlighting, which I actually didn't know until I read your report. <laughs> yeah, so. so Indianapolis, population about 800,000, I think. Their master planning process engaged 100,000 people, right, compared to our 15,000. And I think that is just, uh, and and they talk, you know, we highlight the ways that they did that specifically in terms of creating what were called citizens planning institutes, essentially workshops online and in person all around the city where people could learn about what urban planning was and and what are the goals and how to understand the trade-offs. Um, thinking about language access and access to childcare for meetings and other ways to expand participation, that that is something we can really strive for. And that, I think, the civic engagement best practices in the report are what will enable us to build the political will for some of the changes that I think your question begs, Peter, of how do we fund the city sustainably? Because property tax in this fiscal year, 71% of Boston's budget 
the revenues that go to pay for city staff and teachers and and first responders and parks maintenance, 71% of that came from property taxes. About two-thirds of that sum comes from commercial properties. And so there is pressure to keep commercial development going to fund the necessary business of city services. And the higher end, the better, right? Exactly. So how do we change that? Um, there are, you know, in the, the short-term answer is that there are several state proposals that we will try to put as much momentum behind as possible. The fair share amendment, I think, is one of the um, the most expansive in terms of the amount of funding and the, the needs that it would address. The recent legislation about um, educational equity and, and the new funding formula is a huge, will, will be a huge win for Boston. And ultimately, the question is around home rule. Should Boston continue to be bound in the way that we are in Massachusetts, which is much more bound relative to the state um, compared to other cities? There is currently no other way for the city of Boston to be thinking about revenue raising mechanisms that do not require state approval. You know, we've done little things. You can talk about the Airbnb ordinance, which now has, um, through registration fees on on those units, will create an amount of funding. Um, we can talk about fees on on this and that to address the cost of delivering a service. But this is a larger question that is about the the structure of the city relative to the state. But if Boston were unbound, well, let's just imagine a better future. What was some what what would one or two things the city could do to raise more money for itself? We could think about a carbon tax on off street parking, right? So right now there are ways to talk about this that you try to maybe we could do it under city um, authority as a a fee or or this or that. But really, um, the way that I see, cities needing to fund city services is about making the costs of different behaviors line up better with the impacts of that behavior. And so when someone is um, investing, an overseas investor has a, a luxury apartment and they're not living in it and they're just holding it, there probably should be some funding that comes back to the city because there is a cost to the city of giving up that unit, not having the residential fabric made stronger from a resident actually being there. And so you think about whether it's a speculation tax or vacancy tax or uh, ways to, you know, counter the impacts, the negative externalities of certain behaviors. And then I think there's a whole host of um, ways that we should address the climate impacts and thinking about mitigation. So when we have lots of parking spaces and lots of cars are coming into Boston, even just a small tax on that would be enough to offset the impacts of all the pollution from those cars and invest in our infrastructure and expand the T. Um, There are ways to do that now, but only with and through the state. Are any of the other municipalities that you highlighted in your report, are any of them bound by anything remotely analogous to home rule in the way Boston is? So every city has some version of home rule, but Boston, Massachusetts is pretty unique in how restrictive it is. That was my sense. I haven't dived into this stuff, but that was the the sense that I had. Um, 
I know we have to let you go pretty soon, but there's one question off of planning. Peter, are you good when it comes to yes. yep. the counselor's EPDA proposals? A question I wanted to ask you uh, about the composition of the council. It has been noted by people who watch the council, I think by some people who are in the council, that conceivably this year's elections could yield a council that has more women than men on it for the first time in the body's history, I believe. I'm just curious about what you think the implications of that would be if it came to pass? Would it be a, an interesting footnote and that's about it? Or would it change in some meaningful way the, the way the council does its business? This year could be historic in a number of different ways. And, you know, depending, <laughs> November 5th is a day, so I want to make sure that everyone remembers that, marks their calendar, reminds their, all their friends and family to vote. This could be the year that Boston sees a majority Female council, as you said, we could also have a majority people of color, depending on how certain races turn out. We could also have a majority progressive council. And so what will that mean for the city if any or all of those three barriers are broken? I think it's really about the connection to community. And, you know, some people have been disappointed and, and um frustrated with how low turnout was in September preliminary. And I agree, 11% is not anywhere near uh, where we should be. But I think it's a victory in that we even had that election because Boston's not used to seeing candidates step out to run in these off-year elections when it's low turnout and, and you know, challenging the incumbents, etc. And so we haven't had a we haven't had enough candidates running to trigger a preliminary election in a council only year since 2003 so oh, i didn't realize that yeah when i was trying to put together numbers um i i was editing mike dean wrote the, the initial story and i'm asking him to make all these comparisons and he keeps reminding me I said, oh no mike right right we haven't had a, there's no compare right. yeah, there's there there really hasn't been a recent good comparison just that energy around candidates stepping out to run campaigns that are bringing new people into the process exciting communities is a victory and the the team of counselors that will be elected from that is guaranteed to be closely connected to those communities and committed to partnering. We have had more candidate forums this cycle than in a long time. And it just shows, again, how much people, residents and organizations are seeing the city council as a platform for partnership on the issues. One other issue that has, or one question that I've gotten a lot that I think is important to address is around the role of community in envisioning a different planning and development process. And, you know, people have said to me, I agree the BPDA is broken. I agree our process could be fixed. But I think the only thing worse than the BPDA running things would be giving it all over to more community meetings and hearings and, and process. And so I just really want to emphasize that throughout the report, there is not at all a call for more hearings and more process, that this is really about creating predictability and giving people a way to meaningfully influence the process at the right stage of the process, that there really shouldn't be this negotiation by negotiation model where a developer brings something to the table and then the community has to 
find a way to vet that and they're really their only real leverage point is to oppose and a lot of these conversations start at the level of planning zoning and development but then quickly get into your belief about human nature right can you trust your neighbors to not be quote-unquote nimbies and really um <clears throat> want to participate in creating a community where, where new people can come and, and thrive. And I think it's, you know, it feels very insulting to say that we can't trust people who know their neighborhoods inside out and who have been doing this for so long to actually have real meaningfully meaningful input into the process. But it's not about creating community, you know, um, each one meeting after will now another. Have 50 meetings, right? Exactly. It's about having true planning where people define what the community's needs are, then codifying that into zoning and clear rules that apply across the board. Peter, you had a guy, Ben Yurier, write about that very same concern. I, I did a small businessman in Jamaica Plain who, when I was characterizing your report to him, he said, We've all seen what I'm about to say on Twitter. Great, just what we need. Ten people can get together and stop anything in Boston. And I said to him, well, you can tell me if my answer was correct. I said, I think what Councilor Wu was proposing is that by making the whole process more predictable, it's going to decrease um, the, in effect, extortion that takes place. And that's an extortion—it's extortion— in public, it, it's it's sort of extortion by community meeting, you know. All right, Adam, I'm going to make you pay for this because you're going to have to come to seven more meetings <laughs> to put your building up. And, yeah, I, I predictability think, to me yes. is the key to what you are proposing. And it's certainly about expanding the expanding the participation so that it's not just 10 people who are making decisions right. on behalf of the neighborhood, but truly representative feedback. But I also believe that even those 10 people, if the system were different and they had more productive, positive, meaningful ways to participate, would act differently and ask for different things. And that when put in a position where their only leverage is to say no, to have the chance of getting something for the community out of it, of course they're going to do that. But if the system were changed so that they could actually help set the rules in a way that made sense for everyone and consider the trade-offs, I think people just want to have, people understand people that trade-offs. you're saying. Exactly. All right. That is going to do it for another installment of The Scrum. Boston City Councilor Michelle Wu, thank you for joining me and Peter. Thank you for having me. It's been a thrill. And, oh, wow. <laughs> it has been! <laughs> that is a first, by the way. So, uh, as always, thanks to you as well for listening. Please subscribe to The Scrum and rate us if you haven't already. And feel free to talk back to us about anything you just heard. On Twitter, I'm at Riley Adam. Peter is at Kansas. And I believe, Councilor, you are at... Is it just Wu Train? At Wu Train. At Wu Train. One of the coolest Twitter handles there is. That's a pretty good one. Our engineer was Dave Goodman. We get essential production help from him, Andrew Maswa, John Parker, and Gary Mott. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News. Mm -hmm.